This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Demrest, CPA with Parmelis and Associates. Today, I'm really excited. Uh, we got Andy Bizub on here from Midwest Performance Cars. Some of you guys might have seen Andy on some of Carmcast and other things around the industry. Really good guy. Really cool story here. So the reason why I had him on this week is Andy's a little bit different than a lot of shop owners, and he did not come from you know the automotive repair industry before he got his shops. Um, he comes from the personal finance world, which he will talk about a lot better than I can here. Talk about investments and stuff like that. But how this specific topic came up today about personal finance and what you should or should not be doing comes from a ratchet and wrench class that Andy actually taught about a month or two ago. Um, And I thought it was a really good idea because the way that Andy looks at a lot of things is from a completely different aspect of what most people are looking here. And I just love his insight as always. So Andy, just want to say, first off, thank you for coming on here. Yeah, my pleasure. Before we get into more with Andy here, I want to have a quick word from our sponsors who make business by the numbers possible. Your techs don't want to stand around while you type in details for an RO. With Shopware, an RO gets set up in seconds instead of minutes and everyone gets on with their day. It's that easy. GetShopware.com. In today's world, managing the labor side of your business is more important than ever. Utilizing their industry-leading software, Labor Profit Management, Repair Shop of Tomorrow can help shops maximize their profits by developing a specific plan for each client. Please visit them at RepairShopOfTomorrow.com. First and foremost, you know, I guess let's just talk about this. You know, let's start from a very macro level, you know, because a lot of people have a really good idea what to do with their business finances. And you and I have talked about this in the past is a lot of people are extremely diligent on their business finances. And then when it comes to their personal finances, it's just absolute mayhem. So if you're sitting here thinking, you know what, this might be me. I mean, where do we start here? You know, what are the key things that we need to know? So I always approach this from a risk management kind of point of view, because that was my business before getting into the auto repair industry. I was actually a commodity trader for 25 years. And the real skill in that business is risk management. You want to be able to show up the next day to work. You don't want to be carried out of there or blow out. The thing that really triggered my interest in presenting on this topic rather than just your more regular automotive topics was late last year and early this year. I'm in several Facebook automotive groups and other automotive owners discussions groups. And I saw a lot of people saying how they were putting a lot of their investment into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Now, that was back when Bitcoin was at 60 and $40,000. Now today it's around 19 or 20. I mean, when I see that kind of concentration, my radar right away went up and I was like, whoa, I wanted to just kind of put the red flag up for people that don't get into this emotional thing of taking your money in, in with your investments, particularly with your retirement investments. So that kind of gave me the idea to, you know, just do a presentation on just the basic way to stay stay safe and be able to sleep at night with your investments and give them the chance to grow over time and let time work for you and get yourself into a, a really good financial position outside your business as well as inside your business. The point that you bring up is really cool too here. It's it's all about risk management, right? So it's great that you have these reserves. It's great that you have these investments. But if you go too risky, you risk having nothing left over. 
is there a certain point that you can say, hey, once you get to this reserve, then you can go in and get more aggressive on it? Or do you say, hey, you really should look at this differently? Because a lot of these people already have what I'll call a risky investment. They're self-employed, right? You know, that's not guaranteed income. And so would you recommend them to never really get into risky investment or what's your kind of personal preference on that? So, I mean, you think of your investment portfolio as the bell curve, right? That big middle of the bell curve, you want to have the bulk of that into relatively safe, liquid investments like the equity markets where you can sell a stock, you can sell a mutual fund or an ETF, you know, quality municipal bonds, stuff like that. You can take risks. You want to buy some Bitcoin, that's fine. But you can look out at the very tail end of your bell curve of those investments. So you don't need a lot of money in something which is higher risk because generally the higher risk stuff is going to also, the reason why it's higher risk is it's also got the potential for a much higher reward. So you want to be putting very small amounts. You don't need a lot of money in those kind of things if they work out. And if they don't work out, you know, if you have 5% of your of your investment portfolio or something in gold and silver and Bitcoin and Ethereum, and, you know, gold kind of sits there for 10 or 20 years like it has, and uh, Bitcoin kind of chops around, you're not going to get real hurt. But, you know, if Bitcoin goes to 250,000 or half a million, like some people were saying, you don't need a whole lot of that to really get a big return from it. So you want to stay with the very liquid stuff. And there's an adage, the best portfolio is not necessarily the highest returning portfolio. The best portfolio is the one that you can stay in, the one that you're not going to get shaken out of. Because markets, one of their functions is to go after the weakest hand and get them out of the market. And you see it all the time when we have these big market moves. Right in 2007, 2008, when the market got cut in half, it was when all the, all the retail investors all finally said, enough, I'm out. And they have this moment of capitulation and they get out and then all the sellers are done. They've sold. And the really strong hands are still holding, you know, institutional investors, people who are in for decades and decades that don't get shaken out of the market. You know, so you don't want to be in a position where your investments are keeping you up at night or where you're so concentrated into risky investments that a big a setback in, in any one or any segment or any one particular investment is going to force you out of that position. I love it. I mean, you just brought up like 15 good points there and you can see me taking down some notes on it. But I wanted to highlight a couple of things that you talked about. So one of the first ones is liquidity, right? Liquidity is huge because it's great that that's making you a bunch of money. But if you can't get your money out of there, then what is it, right? And so one of the things that Andy mentioned there was make sure that you have investments that you can get out if you need cash. You know, can you talk about that of, you know, where you've seen that go wrong in issues where people are making good money, but it's, you know, paper money, you know, it's it's gains that you can't really realize? Sure. When you get into more, into the more, like, kind of the more esoteric investments, like limited partnerships, things where you have to lock up your money for a, a longer period of time. You know, you have a lot of hedge fund investors that get caught in stuff like this. These are high, higher net worth individuals, but you know, where a minimum investment might be a quarter of a million dollars and somebody puts 2 million bucks in, into a hedge fund and the market turns and the hedge fund puts up what's called a gate and they gate redemptions and you can't get your money out. 
Now that's not going to apply to most guys like you and I who aren't putting that kind of money into single investments, but you do have, have those kind of things. And I'll tell you, you know, the professional investment community learned this over the last couple of decades, really with China. China was the big, big growth story in the early 2000s, right? And all of these big investment companies put big money into Chinese stocks. And then when the Chinese market started to soften, they find out that they, wow, they can't get their money out of those, those stocks. A lot of people that don't ever bet against the US. The US market, you can always get in and you can always get out, right? There's always a willing buyer there for a high quality US stock. There's always a, a liquid market there to be able to get out. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that you mentioned before is, you know, talking about maximizing your gains, but also trying to minimize your losses on it, which is something very often overlooked is the ceiling is very high, meaning they could return 20 or 30 percent return on your money. Then that probably means that, that floor is pretty low where you could easily lose 100 percent of your money, i.e. Bitcoin, crypto and stuff like that. And so realistically, I guess two parts of this question, what would you say if, if you're factoring this in there and people are kind of measuring investments, what should you have as like your target annual return on investment? Well, think about it. If you get managed, you get six, six to seven percent a year, year after year. The thing about long term investing is you don't need home runs. You just need to get on base. You need singles and the occasional double. I'm not talking about doubling your money. I'm talking about I'm talking about, you know, six or seven percent year after year, compounded yearly, turns into a really large amount of money after 20 or 25 years. And yeah, it sounds like a long time, but I've been investing for 35 years and I'm still a pretty young guy, right? I'm not even close to retirement. And hopefully I've got decades left ahead of me. And if you're just in there and you can let that money build year after year after year, I mean, you know, the calculation, I, I, I looked this up, it was a 7% doubles every 10 years or something, something along those lines. Compound interest is, a, you know, a magical thing. Compound interest is your friend. Uh, I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, we set up a retirement plan for our whole company. And most of my guys are between their 20s and 30s. So we have a really young company. And this year I've had to, uh, like every month, I'll speak up in the, our morning meeting and I'll say, look, I know you guys are probably looking at your, your account and you know, you're, it's down or it's, it's going sideways. You guys are young enough. This is a time to keep putting that money in, that weekly money, that 50 bucks that comes out of your paycheck or 100 if you can manage it or 25, but keep dribbling that money in because you're going you're gonna to buy it up here. You're going to buy the market here, down here, and then you're going to buy it back up here as it's going back up. So you're going to average your way in and just keep it steady and boring. And don't look at your, you can look at your account if you're disciplined, but if you're not disciplined, if you get nervous, just don't even look, look at it once a month or once every quarter, right? And just let it build on its own. This, the US stock market has never let the long-term investor down. And you know what? If you really think it's gonna, then there's way bigger problems. If the US stock market is not gonna perform over the next 30 years, there's much bigger problems to worry about. If that goes south, then I would argue that whatever alternative investment that you have is probably not going uh, too great as well either, right? You know, it's the least of your worries like, hey, your investment's great, but, you know, our entire banking system and stock market is gone. So kudos to you. <laughs> That's one of the funny things is that 
I'm not a against crypto. I understand the concept of having a. It's gambling, though, right? I mean, the kind of risk is gambling. Yeah. Right now, it's a trading vehicle. It's not a store of value because it's not. Nobody really, really knows what it is. Not even professionals know what it is. It's a trading vehicle. But the thing about crypto is, is one of the justifications is, you know, if the wheels really come off a of society, you know, you're going to want guns and gas and gold and crypto. Well. How are you going to access your crypto if like there's no electricity, you can't hit your computer, the internet's down. I don't know how you get, you make crypto work for an it, IOU, you know, so. right? Just on a post-it note, be like, Andy, I'm giving you one Bitcoin. Now, when the internet comes back, I'll transfer comes that. Comes back up. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah, right. You know, you got to think in practical terms like that, you know? Yeah, no, it's really, really, I like that idea on it. And, you know, I, I even tell a lot of people, hey, if you're 20s, 30s, even probably 40s, don't even look at your retirement account, right? You're going to get too emotional. It doesn't matter. You're not, you shouldn't be changing your behavior. And what do you think about the saying? Cause I've heard this a lot is, you know, look, Wall Street looks at what the public is doing and generally does the opposite, right? So when, Everyone thinks that the market is extremely hot and everyone's flooding into the market. Wall Street's pulling back, right? Because they're like, ooh, what's going on here? Now, on the flip side, like what you just said, when everyone is getting out of the market, like, oh, things are going south, these guys are buying anything and everything that they can, right? And so do you think that that's true? Is there a caveat to that? Is that not really representative for an individual investor or what? It is generally true. And, and I'll give you two examples why. In the commodity markets, there was a report that would come out every month called the commitment of traders. And what it would say was basically, it would say the big overall positions of the major players in the market. And it's set in two of the groups that separated out were like commercial industrial users of the commodities and then retail. And when you had a commitment of traders report that showed that the retail investor was owning a lot of stuff, that was when you wanted to sell the market because it was just about the turn, right? Because the retail investor, they don't really have a, in the commodities, they don't really have a use for it. The commercial, industrial, they're going to use that commodity. They make their money on, on marketing those commodities. What's Andy as an individual doing buying a wheat futures contract, right? Exactly. So that was in the commodity market. In the equity markets, um, there is the American Association of Individual Investors. They have a, a market sentiment indicator. And when that market sentiment indicator is showing a very high bullish reading is when markets tend to turn to the downside. And when that market sentiment indicator shows a, a very bearish reading, it's when the markets tend to turn up. And if you think about it logically, it makes a lot of sense. If people are really, really bullish on the market, well, that means they probably have positions already. They've already bet with their dot with their pockets and they're in the market. They've bought stocks. Well, where's the next buyer coming from? If everybody's bullish, everybody's already in. There's not another buyer there. On the converse, if everybody is bearish, that means everybody's out. Or they've, you know, maybe for real speculators, they got short. So if everybody's out or so and there's a few short people who are short the market, where's the next person to sell it hard? You know, they're all gone. The sellers are all gone. So the only people left are people to come in and start buying. And then the market turns back up. So there is a lot to be said about when you're hearing people talk about the stock market being so great all the time, boy, you're getting close. I tell you what, I was even in the, just to not to belie my age, but I was working in the markets back in the 80s. This was about September, August or September of 1987. Markets were getting really crazy and really busy. 
And I left work one day and I got into a cab at like 10.30 at night and the cab driver was telling me about all the stocks he was invested in. And October 87, we had the first big crash of my lifetime. So, I mean, when you hear the cab drivers and the guys shining shoes talking about, hey, the stock market's really great, or, you know, and he, he was asking me, what stocks are you in? And I'm like, hey, I'm, a, I'm not a clerk, you know, I'm, I'm not, been, I don't have any stocks yet. That's when you know, you know, something's about to turn. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, well, it's just like anything in this world, right? It's, you know, style, right? If you go to like style, like, oh, hey, this is the hip trend. If you see it on the Today Show, you've already missed the boat. It's no longer cool. It's like it's actually killing it. Right. And and we saw this so much on crypto. Right. Like my dad texted me one day and said, hey, how do I buy Dogecoin? And I was like, hey, dad, <laughs> how did you hear about this? And then also like that's as soon as you said this story, I'm like, my dad's going to kill me when he hears this. But when he, as soon as he texts me that, I was like, well, that's the end of the run for Dogecoin. I'm like, if it's trickled down to my dad hearing about it and trying to invest in it, then you know what? It's probably gone. And yeah, shortly after that, I mean, you know, for those who don't know, Dogecoin was, I guess, still is a more obscure crypto coin, essentially like Bitcoin, but it had a meteoric rise. I mean, thousands of percent increase in a matter of weeks. But, you know, I'll, I'll ruin the ending for you. And then negative thousand percent decrease in the following weeks on it. You know, volatility like we've never seen. I remember it did run up on Elon Musk tweeting. And it went down on him tweeting and then went up on him tweeting, which is, yeah, SEC, I think, is, has talked to him a couple times about that. <laughs> and I also remember there was a rumor going around that uh, Tesla was going to start accepting Dogecoin as payment for cars. And that's absolutely true. I think he tweeted that. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. And that really launched it. And that got all all the, uh, you know, the crypto boys on board and uh, the rug got pulled out. So, yeah, we won't even get into NFTs today, which is another, you know, crazy market that. Well, and that's crashed too. the NFT. It's gone. Yeah, they're still there, but the volume has gone way, way off. And that's one of those kind of things that, you know, if it just doesn't make any sense to you. Um, you know, Warren Buffett's famous for he only buys into companies where he can understand what their business model is and what it is they're actually selling and what their plan is, their plan going forward. I like to think that I'm pretty progressive in terms of, you know, new ideas and everything, but NFTs just never made any sense to me at all. Yeah. And a big thing on it, too, that you bring up Warren Buffett, which is an uh, awesome point because, hey, the guy's made more money than God. Now, depending on who you ask, there's some haters out there that say, well, hey, he made all of his money because he had a couple really early investments that turned out. But the philosophy is sound in a lot of aspects, right? Do what Warren Buffett does. He's very notoriously extremely frugal with his money. He does not live and he does not live above his means, which I don't even think he possibly could. How rich he is. Like, how could someone that's like a trillionaire live above their means? It doesn't exist. But, you know, he also says investing is for the long term, right? I'm not looking for fads. I'm not looking for the next hottest thing. I'm not looking for 50% return on my money. I'm looking around for companies that are going to be here forever, right? That's why he's in Coca-Cola. He's in so many of these things where it's like, what is one day Coca-Cola just going to be like, we don't drink that anymore. Now, the way that this world is going, probably at some point people will revolt and be like, we're no longer drinking Coke products. But I mean, these are companies that have been around for 50, 100 years. Well, sure. But think about it. Think about Coca-Cola, right? So Coca-Cola was a huge drink in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. People don't drink that much sugared soda anymore. Coke owns Dasani. Coke owns Topo Chico. Vitamin water. You know, it's half the thing. If you think you're avoiding Coke, you're really probably not. Gatorade too, right? Or Gatorade or Powerade as well? That was PepsiCo. You know, in, in Buffett, he doesn't get out of his 
stocks, right? He's owned Coke for decades. And that's another thing that people really need to think about, right? Because especially when you are not a professional investor. See, when I was a commodity trader, my income was taxed at a completely different way than your normal income of, you know, when you have a job or even if you own a business today, right? My income was taxed as a commodity trader different than my income as a shop owner. Now, even though being a business owner, you know, there are tax advantages. When you're a professional trader, there's a lot more tax advantages. But when you are just a regular retail investor, you're getting taxed on your gains in stocks as regular income. If you buy a stock for $100 and it goes to $200 and you sell it, you're going to pay tax on that $100 gain of wherever you are. I mean, if you're in the 33% tax bracket, you're going to pay $33 out of every 100. Now think about what kind of returns you have to get consistently to exceed that kind of tax treatment. It's really tough. So that's really why you want to be looking at, at long-term long-term investing, long-term holding, things that you're not going to have to get out of. Well, it's just the same thing, right? It, it goes down to anything, right? Transaction fees, all kinds of stuff, you know, and also just how much is your time worth, right? Like, hey, you could buy and sell something every single year for the next five years and hopefully average a 6%. But if you had the right company, you could have bought it, turned off your computer, never looked again. And five years later, you're at the same spot, right? You know, so, so looking at that is a really cool idea. We all have bad days where we just turn to someone and ask, how the heck do I fix this? When that happens to you on the business side, which may not be your strong suit, you want someone quick and you want them to be clear. That's exactly what Dan Groen from Detroit Garage found when he peppered the folks at Shopware with questions about how to make the most of its shop management system. As he puts it, they continually solve the curveballs that we throw at them. With seven shops, Dan jokes that he is a demanding client, but that is a sign of a guy committed to his business. Even better, the Shopware support team met every challenge with, in Dan's words, impressive capabilities and vigor. No complaints, no hassles, just a commitment to help Dan through his day. As Dan says, we make each other stronger. Now that's a partnership that works. It is time. Visit GetShopware.com. In today's world, managing the labor side of your business is more important than ever. Utilizing their industry-leading software, Labor Profit Management, Repair Shop of Tomorrow can help shops maximize their profits by developing a specific plan for each client. Do you know what your effective labor rate is? Do you know your technician's efficiency and productivity? Do you know how much profit dollars each technician is adding to the bottom line? If the answer is no then this Napa Auto Care endorsed program from Repair Shop of Tomorrow is the program for you. Developed for shop owners by shop owners, this program will help you become more profitable on day one. Utilizing their unique labor management systems will allow you to work smarter, not harder. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. Now, talking about you know professionals and stuff like that, what are your thoughts on people keeping this in-house and saying, because I have you know high net worth clients that don't really have a financial advisor. I have people that do have financial advisors. Um, obviously, I'm a bit jaded. And I always think that you should utilize professionals for what they do best. But then the argument on the other side of this is if you look, you know, the average, you know, I don't know, an investment banker 
doesn't generally beat even just average market returns. And so what would you be looking? Is there a certain threshold where you should say, hey, if you get above this much money that you have to invest or already invested, you should be talking to a professional? Or do you say, hey, you should be leaning on these people no matter what? First of all, it really comes down to personal discipline, right? And that kind of ties into what I referenced earlier, the risk management skill. Are you personally disciplined enough to A, kind of set aside money for investment? B, not to jump on the latest fad, not to get scared out of investments. Spend enough time actually doing diligence on what you're investing in to be knowledgeable enough to say, you know, yeah, I can... Do you know how to how to get into a just a plain S&P 500 index fund? Uh, do you know how to look at costs of index funds? So you're getting into just the cheapest fund because cost, that's another thing. Costs will kill you, right? Transaction costs, all that. And do you have time? Is this something you want to be spending your doing? Is it an interest to you? Yeah. The thing about, about having a professional or, you know, having a financial advisor is there's costs associated and also there's minimums, right? So if you have like if you have a $20,000 account, you're not going to, there's nobody who's going to advise you on that because they cannot make enough money advising. And this is one of the things that I often reference in our, in our business. We, as shop owners, we get irritated with people who don't want to spend the appropriate amount of money to maintain their car, but then we want to get something for free whenever we can, right? <laughs> and I know that's human nature, but you know, you got to look in the mirror. What's worthwhile? What's valuable? As we spoke just before we started, I actually had a call this morning with our financial advisor that my wife and I use. And a really big job of a financial advisor in terms of general public out there is to keep you off the ledge. Just calm you down. Absolutely. And our advisor, she has an easier time of it because I don't get near the ledge. I understand that that the market has troughs and, and peaks and valleys, and this is a part of being invested. I'm a more experienced investor in that way. But she really makes my wife feel very secure and everything with, with our finances. It's 100% worth it for me. I don't have to worry about looking into the details of all the stocks and all the, all the mutual companies and everything. So she really handles that. But she spends a lot more of her time keeping other clients away from the ledge than us. That is a big job. But the, but, and then also just, just good sound, sound advice and just keeping you on the path. You've got a plan. Even as a professional trader, it wasn't as important to have the greatest trading plan just to have a plan. Just don't go in there just shooting from the hip. Have a plan thought out about, you know, that makes sense to you. How you're going to invest and what are you looking at 5, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What are your goals? What are you trying to get to? Yeah, exactly that, right? What are your goals, right? And if you don't know your goals, then you probably need a financial advisor because they're going to help you set those goals. But if you have in the back of your mind and you're pretty good with finance and you understand this stuff and we haven't lost you already in this episode, then you probably know enough to do fairly straightforward investing, right? You know, a general portfolio, if you could get a handful of, you know, Vanguard is my personal favorite because their fees are extremely low. Do your own research on this. But you know, if you get a handful of, you know, ETF funds spread between index, maybe some bond markets, maybe some real estate stuff, again, you could throw it in there, ignore it and go. And you'll probably do just fine over the longer average. But if you're sitting here thinking, hey, I have specific goals, I have kids, I have a weird situation at home, I need to make sure that this is out there. You know, this is why the professionals are there. Like Andy said, hey, a professional is not going to be able to say, well, Hunt, you can get 5%, I'm going to get 30%. No, but a professional could say, all right, based on what you want to do here, 
your portfolio doesn't make sense whatsoever, right? This is never going to achieve your goals. Or they might say, hey, this is going to well exceed your goals, but I'm worried about the downside, you know, and where it comes into talking them off the ledge of like, hey, the sky's falling. It's like, well, Andy, it should be falling, right? You told me that you wanted extremely aggressive, which means we're going to blow some stuff out of the water. But when things go down, you know, it's going to go down and you got to be mindful of that. You know, and I also just think, you know, when you're talking about everyone wants something for free, it's like how many of the people that, you know, tell me or tell you, well, I don't need a financial advisor. They charge all this money. It's like, well, you know how to run a shop, but you still pay a coaching company because it helps you run that shop better. Right. You know, it's not going to a financial advisor and, and giving them complete control is not giving up and saying that you don't know what you're doing. You're saying, I know what I'm doing, but they probably know more. Right. And if they don't know more then you know, that's a problem in itself. Here's a good relatable thing for auto shop owners. Think of it as your financial diagnostic fee that you're paying. We always talk in our shop about customers have to understand there's a diag fee for diagging that car. Well, this is the diag fee for maintaining that portfolio in a safe and sound, you know, setting. Yeah. And again, there's people out there that will do just that, right? You don't need to give them complete control. You can have, you know, whether you tell them that you're just interviewing them to take over this, or if you actually hire them as a project of, hey, I'm pretty comfortable. I want you to take a look at my portfolio and give me some tips on what you would do if you took over, you know, to be able to say, hey, you know what? I'm in line. We're doing what we're doing here. But you also got to make sure that, you know, the relationship is there, right? Because you talked about it. I mean, talking off the ledge, it's like almost like a therapist, really. You know, but you got to make sure that you have the same mindset uh, for this, you know, professional as well. And so what would you say to someone when they're looking for a financial advisor? Would you be looking for fees? Would you be looking for location? Yeah. What would kind of be the biggest for you? Yeah. Location doesn't really matter that much anymore. I mean, look at us. We're, you know, I'm in Chicago and you're Maryland. I don't physical location to me doesn't make a big difference. I would rather pay a fee every year to have for that financial advice. I don't want to be commission-based. I don't want them to have any incentive. And so when you say commission, does that mean that they make it on the trade or just transaction? Yeah, commission on a trade. That was a lot of the old style. You know, a lot of the more speculative stuff was commission-based. That gives a bad incentive to turn over parts of your portfolio. And remember, we don't want turnover. The only turnover we really want is towards the end of the year. If we have a couple of losers that we don't want to hold on to anymore, Sell those losers so that you can book a loss on your income taxes against winners. You think about, whoa, you know, I, I made this much on this stock. I want to get out and, and take that money. Well, you're going to pay taxes. But why are you getting out? Is the company no good anymore? You could have held uh, right Amazon from when it was $9 in the late, late 90s to uh, $200 and then missed out on $1,800 worth of additional gains and splits and everything else, right? I want to pay a fee you know, an annual fee for that advice. It's worthwhile advice. You're getting the knowledge of a professional and getting their insight. You can interview these advisors. I mean, and there's, if an advisor can't interview with you and can't sit down and answer some questions, then you don't, you don't want that person anyway. But all the big, the big houses, Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, they all offer these kind of services. So you can ring them up and, and find someone who fits your personality, someone who when you have a day where the Dow's down 800 and you feel you need to talk to somebody, they'll be on the other end of the line and you can reach them or you can shoot them an email because their phone may be ringing off the hook on an 800 down day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> or it's just disconnected, right? Yeah, like phones are yeah, off today. You don't want that. <laughs> 
when you were talking about this of being able to like have that conversation, it's so important because we're talking about goals before. Hey, the investments have to match your goals. And if you can't have that rapport, you can't have that relationship. They can't learn enough about your life to figure out what is good for you. Hey, if someone has five kids or someone has zero kids, that's going to drastically change their plan. If they have a mindset that they want to leave everything to their kids or I hate these kids, I don't want to leave them a cent again, going to change their mind on things. And so being able to open up to someone is, you know, and a lot of times I see this in the accounting world, like, hey, I'm asking you these personal questions, not because I'm nosy, because it somehow relates to what we're trying to do here with your taxes and your businesses. And a financial advisor is really no different on that. As we're talking about this, this is exactly the way that we run our two shops up here around Chicago, right? We're very relational, relationship based with our clients. We know if they're planning on keeping their car or if they're planning on trading it in or sell, you know, whatever. We want to get to know what their goals are for their automobile, what kind of driving they're going to do. We tend to know what they're, you know, how many kids they have or if they have kids, what their priorities are. So it's, it's really the same thing. That really solidifies our business as the repair shop where they'll come for all their problems with their car, not just tires or a cheap oil change or something like that. We're, we're not cheap on anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> they come to the wrong spot no matter what, right? Yeah. But it's the same thing. You want, you want that relationship. Yeah. Or just like that, right? They're not coming to you because you're the best price in town. They trust you. You do the good work and you do it right. You know, just like anything, well, most people that we want to be dealing with are looking for value, not cost at the end of the day. One of the big things that, you know, is is probably one of the hottest topics right now, and it goes back to what you touched on in this class has to do with interest rates, smart debt versus not smart debt. And it couldn't be more relevant right now. I actually just had a shop go out looking to get to buy a new, well, not buy a new building. They're going to build a new location. So it's a $1.5 million project. Talk to the bank. Bank says, we're good to go, Andy. 10% interest. Let's talk about Talk a little bit about what smart debt versus not smart debt rates, how you judge that stuff. And then we'll kind of get into what this is going to look like now, what these interest rates are really going to do to people in the future. Right. So first on the topic of a smart versus not smart debt, the other thing that piqued my interest about doing this presentation was a letter that I got in February of this year from one of the payment processors. And it said, we will lend you the capital to pay your 2021 income taxes. It struck me, first of all, they use the word capital, which is not appropriate. They're lending you cash. <laughs> Second of all, we're coming off of 2020 and 2021 when there was so much helicopter money in the economy. Every shop that I know of is like, we've had our best two years or year and a half. If you need to be borrowing for income taxes after that, you've got a structural problem in your business. Okay. You need to go to hunt to have them take a look at what's going on structurally in your operations that you're needing to borrow to pay income taxes. But the other part of it was the repayment of it. They were getting, the repayment was, it was going to be so simple. They were just going to take a flat number off of your daily receipts. So, you know, if things slow down, you wouldn't be paying as much. Well, if things slow down, I'm going to need every dollar to pay my, all my other expenses. I don't want repayment of uh, money that I borrowed to pay my income taxes, right? That's like borrowing to go to the grocery store, taking a home equity loan to be able to buy groceries. You got a problem structurally in your finances. It really irked me to see this. And I saw this letter and I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, how many shop owners are going to fall for this and do this? It's really a bad, it's a way to get yourself in a hole. Yeah. Remember when credit card companies used to send out like 
they was like they send out the fake checks and people would be like, Oh look, if you need money you can go write yourself a check and I think they must have made it illegal now because I haven't seen it in a while, but I mean I have friends who were tricked by it. I was like, Yeah, can you just I could write a check for three grand? I'm like, Oh my gosh, where do I even start on that? <laughs> oh yeah. A killer fee, right? Like thirty percent or something like that. So that would be dumb debt. Right. I mean, not dumb, not so smart debt. I don't want to call, say anybody. Say anybody. If you're writing one of those checks at thirty percent, yeah, we can probably call that dumb. So if you're borrowing to pay your income taxes or borrowing for operating expenses, that is not smart debt. Smart debt is going to add to your current cash flows or create new sources of cash flow. And I'll give an example. I mean, this is you get a new alignment machine. They just sent me that I'm going to SEMA in a couple of weeks. They just sent me their SEMA show specials. They are still offering 12 months, 0% interest on equipment. Now, if you have an old alignment machine that is costing you time in doing alignments and you're committed to looking at the alignment of every car that comes into your shop and selling alignments that are needed, getting that new machine like we did last year is going to be a good investment. And especially if it's at 0% interest, if they're going to front you the money for 12 months and let you pay it back and the numbers pencil in for you, that would be an example of using smart debt because you're going to increase your revenues. You should be doing it at an appropriate level that your profits are there. You're going to easily service that debt. And at the end of 12 months, you own that thing outright. And now for as long as, as that is still functioning, you've, you've got that additional profit coming in. So, um, you know, durable equipment additions and upgrades, alignment stuff, diagnostic, large tooling. That's the kind of the things to borrow on as long as you're not paying an exorbitant interest rate. And even Hunter, um, I think they were going out to three years. The three years, I think, was like 5.9, but the two years was about 3.9. So you're talking about some really, really cheap money, even at 3.9. I know it's not... We have to kind of adjust our historical perspectives now. Yeah, even for even historical a year ago, right? Right. I mean, three nine money is like three nine. Well, you know, my first mortgage in the eighties was fourteen uh, percent, and then I refied at twelve and refied at ten. You know, and then we had decades of single digit mortgage rates. So you know, your interest rates are up. That's why your charges should be up. Your labor rates should be up. You've got to make sure that you're doing the appropriate your numbers are really lined up because this is going to be a, I believe we're going to, we're coming into a tricky period here of the next couple of years. We got really, really bad monetary policy. I shouldn't say we have bad monetary policy. Now we're, we're paying right now for decades of bad monetary, monetary policy, keeping rates artificially low for 20 years or more. Now we're having to take our medicine. You know, the medicine is always sitting there. It's just a matter of when you're going to take it. Now we're taking it. I think we're running into a couple of tough years because I think people are running out of money. So it's really a time to be very diligent with watching your cash levels, making sure that all your numbers li- are lined up correctly. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, history, what does it say? History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme a lot, right? And they never do the exact same thing, but it's really similar. But, you know, my undergraduate degree was in economics. And so, you know, like this kind of stuff was like right my wheelhouse. And when I was, you know, in school, I guess at this point, 15 years ago, we talked about this, but this was back with Alan Greenspan of keeping interest rates too low for too long. And sure enough, we were having the same exact conversation And if you look at it back then, Alan Greenspan knew when this was going on, this is not going to be good, but because of political reasons, we can't do anything about it. But even the alarm bells were going off there. And I know right now that there's a lot of people surprised by what's going on there. 
most people with a basic understanding of economics and, you know, just how this works, no one's shocked by this, right? I think if anything, I'm shocked that it has taken this long. You know, I sound like a doomsday preacher of like, well, you know, this day's going to come. And I keep on saying uh, it has something has to happen. These charts at this point, if you look at them, it just looks so outlandish. Even a five-year-old could tell the next direction that it's going. I think the most surprising part was that Ben Bernanke just got the Nobel Prize. I saw that. I was. <laughs> Here's something that really that generated a lot of uh, murmuring when I did the Ratchet and Wrench presentation. I didn't come up with this myself. I did read it, but because I was too young at the time to remember this. But when Paul Volcker, Volcker raised interest rates in the early 80s, that wasn't what broke the back of inflation. What broke the back of inflation was when Ronald Reagan cut the rise in government spending in subsequent budgets. And when I brought that up, there were a lot of concerned looks on faces because everybody in that room knew that at least for the next two years, there's not going to be any cuts in government spending. So I would say, keep that in mind in terms of your planning. Just raising interest rates, I don't think is going to kill inflation. This inflation's here for a while and we're going to be paying higher prices for a lot of stuff for a while. It's when the government stops printing money and stops throwing this money out the front door. That'll break the back of inflation, but I don't think interest rates are going to do it. My favorite part about this is the Inflation Reduction Act that Congress passed. You know, and I did a podcast episode. If, if you're really into this kind of stuff, go back and check that out. But I found it the funniest thing ever. I'm like, this is a government spending bill that you are saying is the Inflation Reduction Act. Like, does anyone not realize that this is like the most hypocritical backwards thing I've ever heard of. Like, well, these are all the things that we're going to spend money on to bring the inflation down. It's like, what What are we doing here, guys? When I was in high school and assigned reading was the novel 1984 by George Orwell, I never would have imagined that it could actually come true, but it has come true. Whatever they're saying in Washington is the opposite of what's actually true. I mean, in, in the Inflation Reduction Act is a perfect example. But I think, you know, and kind of getting on to our last topic here, you know, not that this hasn't been uplifting enough, right? You've given some really awesome tips on what you should be doing. But, you know, really, I think it all circles back. The whole reason of why you need to be smart about your investing, making sure that you're taking on smart debt is really so that, again, you can minimize the losses, right? This is the whole reason why we're investing is to make sure that we have a rainy day fund, that we have money for when things get tough, right? If you only plan for the good times, if something bad happens, you're going to be in big trouble here. And one of the things that you just mentioned is, hey, inflation is not a fad, right? Inflation is not something that's like, all right, we're over that. January, it's going to be, you know, it's going to go away. You know, essentially until government spending comes back, this inflation is really here to stay. And so, you know, give me kind of what do you think the outlook looks in the automotive repair industry, personal finance, personal markets in general for the next one, two, three years? I mean, what do you think it looks like? I actually think the repair industry, I think we're going to see some shops closing due to retirement and due to and any shops that are, like I said, the, the ones that where after the last couple of years of, of money just flying around, if you're still not making money, you've got a structural problem and you got the, t the clock's ticking on fixing that structural problem. You got to get out. You can't, don't put it out of mind. So really, really address those structural problems. But you are going to see a lot of, you know, you're going to see a lot of retirements. There is a now this big push for MSOs. So you do have a lot of younger shop owners who are 
going into multiple shops. I think it's good. I'm looking for one more shop, but I don't want to get, I wouldn't get too far out over my skis on, on oh, having a whole lot of multiple shops. I do think we're, the overall economy is going to have a cu- tough couple of years up ahead for the reasons that we've talked about. However, I think the auto repair industry is going to be relatively safe and stable because one of the things is you've had a couple of years now, people can't buy new cars. And so the cars that they are buying, the used cars that they are buying need work. You're going to have a couple of years still of just demand-driven auto repair. I mean, people need cars to be able to get around. Having said that, it is going to be, people are going to have a harder and harder time, I think, paying for just normal things. Everything's going up. One of the good things that inflation has done is it's opened up our industry to be able to, to actually raise our rates to where they should be. And they've been going up. There's still some shops that refuse to budge. I think those are going to be the ones that are going to struggle and maybe not make it. After about you know 18 to 24 months, I think then we'll probably be at the point where we've had maximum pain, we've had enough medicine, and we'll be poised for a turnaround in the economy. A lot of what we've gone through and what we're going through right now really does highlight the resiliency of the U.S. economy. It is the best economy in the world. To me, it's just a varying percentage of how many doers and makers and entrepreneurs are out there at any given time. I think as things get a little bit better after a couple of years, we'll see more and more, you know, more vibrant new business and everything like that. As for personal finance, yeah, I think it's, again, just be, just be cautious, right? Be safe about what you're doing. There's been a lot of talk about a melt up into the end of this calendar year in these markets. I can see the reasoning behind it. Anybody who tells you they know where the market's going to go, they don't know where the market's going to go. Nobody knows where the market's going to go. So prognosticators are, are not to be listened to. And free market's really out the window at this point too, right? If the free market was allowed to do what it could do, we would probably be in a completely different spot, probably worse right now, right? Because, and that's what a lot of people are saying, well, why hasn't happened yet? And it's like, because there is a lot of government intervention here, right? You can do stuff for so long, they can't really change the course, regardless of what some economists think, depending on what uh, kind of field you're in. But you can delay the inevitable for a certain amount of time. And, you know, I'm not sure. And it's crazy. It's coming up here. My date was always midterms. I said they everyone is going to try no matter what side of the aisle on here. Right. We're not going to get into that today. But no matter what side of the aisle that you're on, you know, you either have a vested interest to make this look really good or really bad by midterms. But Democrats are in power right now. And so they are going to try like heck to make this look as good as possible. So if you're thinking to yourself right now, man, it's not great out there. This is as good as they can make it look, right? (laughs) If they say, all right, we've done enough, we're backing away, then what do we think that that worst case scenario looks like? I think that's the scariest part for everyone. I'll throw a ray of sunshine into that. If the House and the Senate do turn over into Republican control and you've got a Democratic president, maybe we're in the best situation we can expect to be in because the government stops doing everything. If they would just stop doing everything, right? What was Ronald Reagan's thing? Uh, the worst thing to hear is I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. We're the government. We're here to help. Yeah. Just stop. Right. I, I think about it. If the government really, really took its foot off of everything, let interest rates go to where the market, the market clearing rate, who knows what it is. I don't know. Maybe it's 8%, 10%. But at the same time, stop. Take your foot off the energy industry we would be energy independent. How quickly could we be energy independent in this scenario? 
if energy companies were allowed to go with leases and exploration and pipeline. So you've got a lot of counterbalancing things where the government really hurts this sector, which would benefit the economy, and the government really hurts this sector, which is hurting the economy. So if we have gridlock, that may be the best we can hope for for a couple of years until we get maybe clear them all out and get some people who are competent. Can we all just get together and agree, just be like, everyone be nice to each other. Let's get these people out of here, because I think we can all agree at this point that they're not making anything any better, right? We have the worst political class in my lifetime across the board, state, local and federal. My wife and I were, I'm not sure why, we were watching one of the debates at some point and she was like, oh, they made a really good point. I'm like, well, then they have no chance of progressing. Like They, <laughs> right. they seem like that they are too level-headed. They're actually making like coherent points here. We're like, they'll never be president. We're, no one will vote for them. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think that really, if we can kind of, you know, wrap up what I took out of this, Andy, is be smart about this, right? Like this shouldn't be exciting. Your finance shouldn't be home runs and strikeouts, right? It should just be the singles. It should be getting by. It should be keeping the reserves because just like I always talk about in business, cash flow, profit can go away at the drop of a hat, right? Market crash, profit is gone, done, dried up. Now, if you have reserves and you have insulated reserves on it, then that's not going to go away forever, right? You can have a burn on it. But, you know, you got to be very careful here because a lot of the people listening to this, it's not just their own family that's relying on them. Your personal finance is also directly associated with your company, which you have your team. Your team has their family as well. And so I've seen this a lot where businesses have been very successful But the owner is killing the business because their lack of personal financial skills or, you know, diligence is now handcuffing the company because they're just taking too much out of it. And, you know, like we said, you know, let's be realistic. Look at the news, right? Are things going to get worse? Are things going to get better? If we knew the exact answer, we wouldn't be on here doing a podcast for, you know, you guys, right? But we got to prepare for worst case scenario. We got to prepare for best case scenario. And making sure that we have money to make it to the next day is always the thing, right? You just have to have enough to get by. Remember at the start of COVID, it was like, hey, we're not here to make a killing. We're not here to grow 80%, which a lot of people have. It's just like, we're just going to survive. If we can get to the other side, we're going to be ahead of at least 20% of people. Yeah. And that's that's the thing with your business. And then, you know, with like I said, with your personal investing, especially retirement planning, look for the boring stuff. The boring stuff just consistently return. And you don't want to be concentrated in any one thing. And stop talking about your crypto wallet. No one wants to hear about it, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Especially now, right? Those like, uh, you know, dinner party and bar conversations have completely gone away, right? Uh, look how much I made this much on Bitcoin. And now it's like, does anyone have a Bitcoin? No one's going to admit that they bought it at 80000 and they're staring at it at 15000 I just want to thank you again for coming on here. You know, I could talk about yeah, this stuff fun. forever. I, I, I always enjoy it. It's whatever. I can't give uh, most of the industry expertise on the technical side of it or under the hood, but I can give you some insight on uh, the financial side of it. So I'm happy to help. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So I hope you enjoyed Andy. I think that he always has insightful ideas and always a new way of looking at things and hopefully gave you a couple tips that you can use in your day-to-day life. As always, please share this with friends. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a future episode, please shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. So thanks again for listening on the Aftermarket Radio Network. You can find all shows on aftermarketradionetwork.com and on your favorite podcast listening app. 
Stay safe and talk to you all next week. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.